Welcome everybody, Lesson 7, Master Plan for Life. Welcome those who are watching on live stream. And I remind you that we have the homework for each lesson, that if you choose to do it, I think it'll be helpful to you in a lot of ways, but it'll prepare you for what we're going to talk about. And then Dr. Combs has been sending out every Tuesday the answers to those, so you can check what you put against that. And if you're not on our email list and you want to be, in order to get those answers, then just to let us know. And you can let us know by, you can use the chat function still, right? Uh, is it the chat function is working for those that are watching online, so you can send us a comment that way that you need it. Or just email me or talk to me after class, and we can make sure you get that. This is Lesson 7, and Lesson 7 is the second lesson in the second section of the first part of Master Plan for Life. So Master Plan for Life has two parts. Part 1, answering the question, who am I? And there are five sections to Part 1 in order to give a full answer to that. The first section that we've completed, first five lessons around the doctrine of God, then God's communication to us in the Bible. So this section we're in now, doctrine of the Bible. After next week, we'll start a new section, and that will be on the doctrine of humanity and sin, then of Christ, and then of salvation. So God, Bible, humanity and sin, Christ, salvation. Those five sections then give us a full answer to the question, who am I? Part two seeks to answer the question, why am I, I here? So we've looked at who God is, and now we're looking at God's communication to us in the Bible. Last week, in Lesson 6, we saw that God has made Himself known, revealed Himself two ways, general revelation and then specific or special revelation. General revelation, as we saw last week, is general information given to a general audience. General information about God, uh, the fact that He exists, the fact that He has all power, the fact that He has standards of right and wrong that people have through their conscience. That can all be seen by everyone in creation and in, in conscience. So that's general revelation. But then there is special revelation, and God has made Himself known in other ways. Uh, and in the past, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 says, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers at various times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Now, those various ways that God spoke, we had listed some of them in Lesson 6 through dreams and through visions and through directly talking to people, uh, that, those kinds of things. But now He has spoken to us through His Son, who we saw last week, commissioned particular emissaries and agents, the apostles, in order to give us the Scriptures. And therefore, God is revealing Himself, making Himself known in this particular special way now, namely in His book, the Word of God, the pages of the Bible. That then brings us to lesson number seven, which is going to look at some of the qualities, some of the features of the Bible that are important for us to know as we read it and study it and seek to live by it. So top of the first page, and I think it's page 61 for you all. Now, I have different page numbers on mine, but it should be the same content, I hope. And if I am reading something that's not in yours, then, uh, then let me know, okay? But at the top of page 61, in the previous lesson, it was shown that God's only means of specific revelation in this age is the Bible. The Bible is unique among the other means of specific revelation, things like dreams and visions, in that it was produced over a long period of time by many people. 
Therefore, God has taken special care to guide humans in the production, the compilation, and the maintenance of the Scriptures. So in this lesson, we're going to see these three things, that the Bible is inspired, that it's complete, and that it is preserved. So first of all, the Bible is inspired. Now we're going to define that in a little bit. We'll define it and then explain what we mean by using that word inspired. You see, first of all, that we say the term inspiration is used to describe the process by which God gave the Bible to man. A good definition for the inspiration of Scripture is this, that God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded without error His message to mankind in the words of their original writings. That's carefully worded, but well-worded, because it covers all of the bases. God is the one ultimately behind Scripture, as we'll see. So he's superintending, but he's superintending people, human authors. And they then compose and record, and they do so without error because God's superintending the process, his message to us, to mankind, in the words of their original writings. We're going to see when we talk about the Bible being preserved that the original writings then were copied. And so we have copies of the original writings, but I'll talk about that in a bit. It's the original writings that God superintended, but He has also providentially preserved His Word through the copies as well, as we'll see. So that's what we mean by inspiration. And it has both a divine aspect, that is God in that definition. You see God is the one who superintended. But then it has a human aspect, because humans composed and recorded. So first we're going to look at God's role in the inspiration of the Bible, the divine aspect of inspiration. It means, first of all, that God is the source of the Scriptures. God is the source of the Scriptures. And we say that He is the ultimate author of, of the Scriptures. Now, ultimate. Why do we say ultimate? Because humans are proximate. They're the proximate reason, but God is the ultimate reason. So the ultimate reason uses, used a proxy these proxies to do, his, to do His work. So God used people, but it was indeed God doing the using. And so that word superintended is used in the, in the definition. God is the source. He's the ultimate author of Scripture, even though each book of the Bible has a human author as well. So the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16, you see it listed there, Scripture is God-breathed. Now, let me stop and chat about that for a moment. Scripture is God-breathed. When it says Scripture is God-breathed, that is that, that word, uh, those words God-breathed are a translation of one Greek word. And that Greek word is theonoustos. And that's a compound of two Greek words, and you guys actually know these two Greek words, believe it or not. Like theos, theology, is the study of God because theos means God. So if someone is, that's why we call someone who doesn't believe in God an atheist, an atheist, no God. So theos means God, and this term theos, now noustos, so the first part's God, but then noustos. And that's uh, a Greek word. That means spirit, wind, breath, air. 
Neustadt. And again, we use that in English. You guys know it. Because if you have pneumonia, you have a, a breathing problem, right? So, so that's why then this word, theonustos, is translated in the New International Version quite literally, God breathe. Theonustos, God breathe. So it's saying that Scripture is the product of the breath of God, that it came out from God, is what it's saying with that. Now, here's where a little bit of confusion comes in. Because the King James Version does not say Scripture is God-breathed. It says, in that same verse, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's what it says. Now, it's translating the same, the same word, theonoustos. But it's translated it as inspiration. Now, why the spiration piece? Well, remember, noustos means wind, air, breath. So does spirate. Because if you have a respiratory problem, what do you have? You have a breathing problem, respiratory problem. If we, if we say when someone dies, they breathe their last, last breath, they expired, right? So spiration is also breathing. It's another way to translate it. So the King James translators use the word inspiration. Well, part of the confusion with that is, though, that it, it emphasizes the inspirating, the in-breathing. Whereas that verse, 2 Timothy 3.16, is not emphasizing to whom it was given. It's from whom it came. So instead of inspiration, it would be better to say expiration, because it came out from God, but then you know, to say expired is good. So there's all kinds of <laughs> problems with it, right? So just understand that the Greek word is that, theonoustos. It's God-breathed. And what it's emphasizing is that it came out from God. That verse, that famous verse about the Bible, is not emphasizing to whom it came, but from whom it came, namely, namely from God. This passage means that the Bible is literally the product of the breath of God. Therefore, although God did not put pen to paper... In the production of Scripture, the words, the sentences, and the thoughts of the Bible are those that God wanted written. So, He is, God is, the ultimate author. And He's using the proximate authors in order to produce what He wants. But He's also using their personalities so that a book written by Paul in your New Testament, even though it is the product of the breath of God, or a book written by the Apostle John, they're quite different. The language they use is quite different. You know, if it was just God using them as robots, then it would, you would expect it would all be the same. But it's not robotic. It is their human personalities. They're involved in the process, but God is guaranteeing by His superintendence that what they write is precisely what he wants written. So this emphasizes a couple of things. One, that it's expired from God. It's God, it's God that's emphasized, not the writers. And 
the emphasis is on the product more than the writers, the, the final product. Now here's why that's important. Because it, it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all it says scripture is God-breathed. So the product is the script, <laughs> the, the writing, the scripture. In fact, the Greek word there in that verse for scripture is graphe. So we get graffiti from it. So it's writing. The writings, the scripture, are, are from God. But it's important to understand that we're talking about the product for this reason. There are sections of the Bible that involved weird people. <laughs> like the book of Proverbs has a section. The 33 sayings of the wise. Uh, the 30 sayings of the wise. And most of those 30 sayings of the wise look exactly like 33 sayings of the wise written hundreds of years earlier by an Egyptian philosopher named Amenemope. So people look at that and they go, wait a minute. So Solomon you know, is like stealing from this Egyptian? Okay. And, and if you have the wrong view of inspiration, then that could really bother you. It could be like, wait a minute, if it's, not, if it's not Solomon or David or Moses or Isaiah or Paul getting the message from God, well, then this, something's wrong here. But if you understand that it's God superintending and that it is the product, the, what is written, that God is guaranteeing, then there can be different actors in the, pro, in the process of, of this. So that's why in that definition, if you go back to the definition, it says God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded. So sometimes... They were recording, not a lot, but sometimes they were recording stuff other people wrote and incorporating it because it was true or it fit what they were, their purpose was. Here's another example of that. If you read the uh, books of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, Chronicles, 1 and 2 Kings, especially in your Old Testament, you'll find this phrase where it's listing these kings and it's saying such and such a king reigned for so many years, lived for so long, and then died. And then another king you know, reigned for so long, lived for so many years, and then died. And it goes through these records. But then it's got this phrase that says, these records are from the annals of the kings of Israel. So what are the annals of the kings of Israel? Those are writings, records, that would have, in effect, been kept at City Hall. You know, so in Jerusalem, just keeping a record of who the kings have been. And so the authors have used those records. Now, again, if your view of inspiration means that every person involved in the process has to have been a holy person or have had to have been directly used by God, well, then that's going to mess up your view of Scripture. But the proper way to look at it is that God is superintending the process and He's using people to collect what he wants written. And if, on occasion, those sources are even secular sources, as long as they're accurate, then God has incorporated them at times in Scripture.
So it's what God wanted written. Middle of that page, the, this passage means that, as we said, the Bible is literally the product of the breath of God. So God is the ultimate author, and then B, God is the author of all Scripture. And that's why 2 Timothy 3.16 does not just say Scripture is God-breathed, but all Scripture is God-breathed. So we believe in the word that you see there, plenary. Theologians use the term plenary, meaning full, to denote the fact that the Bible is completely the Word of God. So sometimes if you go to a conference, like if you work for a company and they send you off to go to some training conference, and they will have uh, breakout sessions, but they will have plenary sessions. That means everybody. It's a full session for everybody to be here. So that's what that, that's what that word means. So when we talk about plenary uh, inspiration, we're talking about all of Scripture is inspired. Now you might think to yourself, well, duh, of course. It's all inspired. Well, not everybody... Not everybody says so. Look at the the rest of this. All Scripture is, uh, the Bible is completely the Word of God. This means that the Bible does not merely contain God's Word, but rather the Bible is God's Word in its entirety. And the reason we have that there is because there have been people who have taught that portions of the Bible are inspired, but others are not. Uh, A guy named Daniel Fuller. He's now, now deceased, but Daniel Fuller wrote a book, a theologian, and he made, tried to make the case that the Bible is inspired when it talks about matters related to salvation. But when it talks about things like history, when it talks about things like science, it's not necessarily inspired. That's what he said. But the Bible makes the claim that all of it is. All Scripture is. God breathed. And further, just think about it logically. Why should I trust God to tell me about salvation, which is an unseen matter? You have to take it on faith. Why should I trust God about the stuff I can't see if he didn't get right the stuff you can see? If you can't get the history right, then why should I trust him about about this other stuff, right? So, no, God has gotten the history right, and the history is accurate, and you can trust all that it says, whether it's about science or history or salvation. Now, what's the significance then of the fact that God is the ultimate author of Scripture? Well, the first area of significance is this. It means that the Bible is inerrant. That is, it's it's without error. Jesus said in John 17, your word is truth. Titus chapter 1 and verse 2 says God cannot lie. Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19 says the same thing. God cannot, cannot lie. So that means if God is the ultimate author of Scripture, then it follows necessarily that it is, it's going to be without error. Since God is the source, they are by definition without error. And since the entire Bible is inspired, that means the entire Bible is inerrant. It also means not only that the Bible is without error, but B, the Bible is infallible. In John 10 35, Jesus said, the Scripture cannot be broken. Now, what's the difference between inerrant and infallible? I think most people would use those as synonyms, as if they're interchangeable, but they're, they are different. Although they're closely related, inerrancy and infallibility are not identical. Inerrancy emphasizes the Bible's truthfulness, while infallibility emphasizes its authority. Think of it this way. You could have a record of something 
that is completely accurate, but you don't have any authority to enforce it. You know, you might write something down that's true, that people should do, but you don't have any authority to make it come true or to, to force your will or any of that. But see, God has both. God is completely truthful. He cannot lie. But God also has complete authority. And so everything that he has said is not only true, but needs to be submitted to. That's what we mean by it being infallible. It has complete authority. It means that because the Bible is the Word of God, it is the final authority on all matters. So we say often, hey, everyone is entitled to their opinion. Yeah, you know, yeah, among humans, I mean, we're all, we're all fallible, so we might as well pool our fallibility together, <laughs> okay? And so that your opinion may be as good as mine, mine may be as good as yours. It depends on what the topic is. You may know more about it than I do. I may know more about it than you do. But, you know, God's not a big fan of everybody's entitled to their opinion. You know, in a democracy, yeah, you know, everybody gets to, as free speech, you know, we've got our rights and we can just all spout off. But God's not interested in our spouting in a theocracy. And from God's standpoint, he rules his world as a theocrat, not a democrat. And I don't mean democrat with a small d <clears throat> as a party. But I just mean not democracy, not the government by the people. Theocracy is government by God. And God rules his world, and God has told his world how it's to be operated, and he has told humanity why they are here and what they are to do, and he expects it to be done. And he deserves and desires that it be done, and he has full authority. He is the final authority. Now, let me just preach at you for a minute here. But when we talk about God being the final authority, you guys all agree. Until the Bible says something that you don't want to do. You know, and I'm, I'm talking to myself as well when I say that. Right? And so I just caution us, all of us, to not blithely agree that God has final authority if we're not willing to submit to that authority. And it, would, it, it is surprising and sad to me that I've had the privilege of pastoring for decades now, and so I've dealt with a lot of people during that time, and it is surprising and sad how many times someone comes upon something that, in Scripture that runs cross to what they want to do and guess who loses? So much for God and so much for the Bible. I mentioned it, I think, this past Sunday, our second hour, about a divorce. And that's one that rears its head every now and then. And the Bible talks about this. And when we talk about God being the final authority then on something so important that impacts so much and an institution that he created, namely marriage. So he speaks to that, but then when a person decides, you know what, this just isn't working for me anymore, all of a sudden God's not the final authority. It's amazing. I'm saying that to you to say don't allow yourself to fall into that mentality, whether about that or any other issue. As we go through this and you read this and you say, yes, that's true, God is fully, has full authority over his world and certainly over those of us who claim to be his children, then let's submit ourselves to what he says, even if it's hard. 
even if it runs counter to what we want to do, which often it will. Which, by the way, is the whole point of authority. <laughs> you see, there would be no need for authority if everything always met with your approval. Right? But, you know, I, I, you, you, I, I see people get in conflicts with their boss at work. You know, does your boss at work have authority? Well, that's why they're called the boss. Now, they don't have authority over you to make you sin. Nobody has that. But outside of that, your boss has authority. And your boss can be a jerk. They shouldn't be. But even if they are, 1 Peter chapter 2 <laughs> tells us that we are to submit to masters, not only to those who are kind and considerate, but also to those who are harsh, it says. This Bible that we're talking about says that. But, you know, you get people who, you know, they go, boss, who is it? And I can go and tell him what to do, and I don't have to do what he says, or, you know, whatever. And none of that's consistent with what we claim to believe about the Bible. All right, I feel better? Let's move on. So note now, it's been shown that the Bible's inerrancy and infallibility are required since God is the author. This is because there's a sense in which the Bible mirrors or partakes of many of God's attributes. For example, God is sovereign, His Word is infallible. Sovereignty means full authority. Well, therefore, the Word that He has given us has that full authority. Because God is omniscient and cannot lie, His Word is inerrant. So that means, friends, our attitude toward the Bible shows our attitude toward God. And if I can be dismissive of the Word of God when it runs counter to what I want, it shows what I think about God. All right. Inerrant, infallible, relevant. Because 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture is useful. The fact that the Bible is God's Word means that its message is relevant in every age. Although God revealed Himself to specific people in specific places and cultures, the value of the Bible's message is not restricted to any place and time. Now, would that be a good thing for our churches to ponder? <laughs> that, because relevance has been, that word has had great currency in the last few decades in church circles. You want your church to be relevant, which in practice what that means is you want your church to be cool. You want your church to be hip. You want people to like your church. Now, none of us want to be disliked. I don't want to be disliked. I like it when people like me. But that's not my objective, right? That's not our objective. And the best thing that we can do to be really relevant is to teach and to preach God's Word. Because it's relevant like all the time. A church that tries to be hip to where a, a particular culture is right now at a place in time, guess what? They'll be irrelevant in a few years, right? Because that'll change. So rather than just, you know, continuing to try to change with the fads and all of that, why not just do your, do your thing? And your thing is supposed to be see people grow in Christ by nurturing them in God's Word. The Bible is relevant. Fourthly, the Bible has unity. Because the Bible has ultimately one author, it never contradicts itself. So think about it. The Bible has 40 authors human authors, 40, who wrote 66 books over a period of about 1,600 years, the last of which was written about 2,000 years ago. So with that, how are you going to get a book come together 
that isn't going to contradict itself. You couldn't get five people today in a room who wouldn't come out and contradict, it, contradict what was talked about, let alone 40 over a 1,600-year period. The only way you can have unity is if you have someone guiding the process, and that someone, of course, is God, and that's why the Bible then is not contradictory, because it has ultimately one author. Even those passages that are difficult to grasp can usually be explained and understood based upon the clear teachings of other biblical texts. So, here's what we mean by that. You come across a passage like Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. And you read that, and if that's the first verse in the Bible you ever read, and you don't have anything else to compare it to, then that sounds like, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, that sounds like you can have someone who was a child of God, who was a Christian, who could then not be a Christian. They could lose their salvation. That's what that passage sounds like. You first read it, admittedly. So, but you got other passages, lots of them, that say that's impossible. So what your first reading on that compared to other clear passages means you need to read that again. That's what we're saying here, that passages can be interpreted by other clear biblical texts. So here's Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, as I said. But then you got John 5, 24. John 5, 24, and Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. That's what that verse says. What a great verse. And it's pretty clear, isn't it? He who hears my word, believes on him who sent me, has, present tense, something called eternal life. Now, just let's think about this for a moment. How long is eternal? We can all agree on this, right? Forever. And then has is present tense. So if I have in the present something that is forever, then by definition it can't be lost, true? We all, we all awake? We good? If it were ever lost, it wasn't eternal, right? So it can't be lost. And you have plenty of passages that talk about this, the, you know, the, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you get this gift that lasts forever, then it, by definition, cannot be lost. So if you come across a passage and you go, wow, that looks like it could be lost. You know, you take somebody like Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. When I was growing up as a kid in my Pentecostal background, I was told Judas was a Christian who lost his salvation. But Judas was never a Christian. He never belonged to, to Christ. And in fact, the Bible teaches that when people do go away, uh, 1 John uh, 2.19, 1 John 2.19 says, they went out from us because they were not of us. So the reason that they departed, the reason they left, is because they never were. Now, in light of that, you go and read Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, and you see, hey, here's somebody who's been given lots of gifts from God, lots of privileges from God, and they ultimately rejected them. So the Bible 
can never contradict itself because God is the ultimate author. And that means you will find that the Bible often interprets itself, we say here. All right, so that's the divine aspect of inspiration. Here's the human aspect. Human authors composed the scriptures. We say composed, we choose that word carefully. We mean that they brought it together, composing it. So sometimes they were writing their own stuff. Sometimes in a few occasions they were using other stuff. Uh, but they composed it. Now, because human authors are involved in the process, it means you've got these human elements. Number one, it means the Bible is written in human language. It was written in the languages commonly spoken by its writers and readers, the Old Testament primarily in Hebrew and the New Testament primarily in Greek. It also means, as I said, it's not robotic, but rather what they wrote has evidence of their backgrounds and their, their personalities. The Bible was composed over more than 1,600 years, 40 different authors, and each author wrote from the context of his vocation, his circumstances, and his intellect. David was a shepherd and later a king, Matthew a tax collector, John a fisherman. Each of these elements influenced the way they wrote, but again, God's overseeing it. And so it contains various styles. Because the Bible has ultimately one author, you might expect this consistent style, as I said earlier, but... The writing style of each book is quite diverse. John and Paul employ different terms and quite, are quite different from each other, but they're consistent in their own writings. And further, there's a wide difference between the style of Greek used in Ephesians and that used in the book of Hebrews. So you've got these human elements, and these human elements, though, were all superintended by God. He didn't mechanically dictate robotically. Rather, he superintended or he carried along the writers, so that the product was what he wanted without negating their influence or on style or vocabulary. So, here's what God did, he, like he always does. God does not find himself having to come up with a person to do his work, and he's like, has to get on indeed.com and and do some recruiting, and to try to find somebody to carry this out. God never finds himself in that position. Why? Because he's always ahead of the game. Why is he always ahead of the game? Because he's planned what's happened. Nothing takes him by surprise. And so the people who wrote the Bible then were all prepared by God in advance to be exactly the people he wanted. Every experience that they had was forming them to be what God needed and wanted at the time he was going to use them to write Scripture. So he says of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5, Before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. So Jeremiah the prophet, before Jeremiah prophesies or writes the book of Jeremiah, he's been prepared by God. Before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. He's preparing David long before David knows anything about what God's going to do through David. He's preparing Saul of Tarsus to be Paul the Apostle before Saul never knows anything about it, right? So none of this catches him by surprise, and that's why he's got just the people he wants at the time he wants it, which is always the case with everything God does. So here's the significance of the human authorship of Scripture. The words of the Bible are inspired. Since humans are both 
the composers and the recipients of God's Word, the Bible's composed in human words. It means that God's guidance of the human author extended to the very words of the Bible, not just the thoughts or the ideas. Theologians refer to this as verbal inspiration. So if somebody were to ask you, hey, what do you believe about inspiration? Which I doubt anybody will do, but if they did, you could say, I believe in plenary verbal uh, inspiration. So that means, now this is really important, that the Bible is to be interpreted as normal human communication. Now we're going to see this next week. Principles of interpreting the Bible. And those principles begin with this, that the Bible has all these human elements to it. Which means you approach it like human communication. And you don't come up with weird ways to interpret it. It's written in words, it's written in sentences, it's got context to it. It's got different kinds, as we will see next week, it's got different kinds of literary forms, it's got poetry, and it's got narrative, and it's got parables, and, it's got, and you interpret accordingly. But there's nothing weird about any of that, because that's what you do with anything. Again, we'll see that next week, but it's important to know that because it's got all these human elements to it, you interpret it as human communication. The next lesson will be devoted entirely to principles of interpretation. It should be noted that each interpretive principle is based on a proper understanding of the nature of Scripture as a divine book consisting, though, of completely human elements like language and style. So proper interpretation of the Bible requires the use of principles that are applicable to any human... And if you don't get that, if you don't get that right, this is where so many people go wrong in interpreting the Bible is they think because it's a divine book, it must have divine ways of interpreting it. So I've got to have some kind of funky, mystical way to come up with what the Bible is saying. And you don't. I'll deal with, give some examples of how people do that next week. So the Bible is inspired. The Bible is complete. The term canonization refers to the process by which the individual books of the Bible came to be recognized as scripture. Now, notice the word there, recognize. Nobody gave the books of the Bible authority. They have authority because they come from God. However, that authority was recognized by people through this canonization process. The root word is canon. It means a rule or a standard. And so the books of the Bible came to be included in the collected writings by virtue of meeting a standard applied to determine their canonicity. By this means, we have what we call the canon of Scripture. So you've got the Old Testament, you've got the New Testament. The Old Testament canon is complete. The Old Testament books were collected by God's people. You see that in Deuteronomy 31 and Joshua 24. But here's what's really important, is that the Old Testament books were confirmed by Christ. See, the great thing about the Old Testament and what books are in the Old Testament is you have the final authority in God come in the flesh, come to earth, comment on the books. So he's the ultimate commentator and definer as to what is supposed to be included. And so he confirms that you actually have the right books in the Bible. Because by the time Jesus came, the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, had been completed for 400 years. 
So between the end of the Old Testament and the time that Christ came, there's this 400-year period where there were no books of the Bible written. Now, I say no books of the Bible written. It doesn't mean there were no books written, of course. Lots of books, lots of histories, lots of helpful stuff. So it shouldn't surprise us that you would then have people who would claim that some of these books in that 400-year period are supposed to be in. So have you ever heard of something called the Apocrypha? So this is a, a list of seven books written during this 400-year period that are in the Roman Catholic Bible. In a Roman Catholic Bible, it has the same books in the New Testament as your Bible has. In the Old Testament, instead of 39, it has 46, seven extra books, written during this 400-year period. Now, how do we know whether these things were supposed to be included? Well, the good news is, you know, Jesus had a few things to say about this. And let's see what he had to, had to say. Luke chapter 24 and verse 44. Luke said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Jesus said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. Now notice in three places, law, prophets, psalms. The Old Testament consists of 39 books and is divided into three sections, the law, the prophets, and the psalms, sometimes called the writings. Now let me explain that. So in a, in a Jewish Old Testament, which is written in Hebrew, as we've said, it has 39 books. And those 39 books in the Jewish arrangement are divided into these three categories. There's the law, there's a section called the prophets, and then there is the writing. Sometimes Jesus calls it the Psalms because the writings has five books in it. Psalms is the first and the largest of those. So sometimes it's just called the Psalms. But it's got these three sections to it. Now to this day, to this very day, Jews refer to the Old Testament as having these three divisions. The law, the prophets, and the writings. I have a Hebrew Old Testament. And on the cover of it, I should have brought it in to show it to you, but on the cover of it, and in Hebrew is really weird. You read from right to left, so like backwards. And so if you're looking at the cover, you would go from the right. It has three Hebrew words on the cover. And the first one is Torah, which means law. And the second one is Nabi'im, which means prophets. And then the third one is Ketubim, which means the writings, law, the prophets, and the writings. And guess how many books are in there? 39, not 46. So that's one comment Jesus made about the parameters of the, the Old Testament. But here's another. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus replied, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all of the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Okay, you guys are in trouble. <laughs> and your murderers. And they were because they murdered him, right? But he says, you will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets. Blood of Abel, blood of Zechariah. Now, blood of Abel, murder of Abel. First human murder. Recorded in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, right? Cain murders Abel. We know that. But then you got the, the blood of Zechariah, the murder of Zechariah. This is not the prophet Zechariah. There's a book in your Old Testament called Zechariah. It's a different Zechariah. But his murder is recorded in the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles. Now, when you look at your 39 books of the Old Testament, the first one is Genesis. 
But then the last one, the 39th book, is Malachi. It's not 2 Chronicles. But here's what's interesting. In the Jewish arrangement, same 39 books, but, and the first book is Genesis. But guess what the last one is? 2 Chronicles. The Old Testament that Jesus used had Genesis first and 2 Chronicles last. And then he says then that, in effect, you guys are guilty of the blood, all the murders that happened from the beginning to the end. Now, what's important about that end is it ends with 2 Chronicles in what Jesus is saying. These seven other books written during the 400-year period, those were all written after that. And Jesus had those available to him. And yet he didn't count them as part of the, as part of the canon. So Christians have no difficulty recognizing which books of the Old Testament meet the standard. We have the words of Christ himself, who is the standard. Then you have the New Testament canon and the 27 books of the, the New. The New Testament books were pre-authenticated by Christ. Pre-authenticated. Meaning, the night before Jesus dies, he says to his apostles, I'm leaving let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. John 14, verse 26, I'm going to send you another comforter, the Holy Spirit. He is going to guide you into all truth. He says in John chapter 16 and verse 13, he will bring to your remembrance everything that I have said to you. So you're going to have this, you're going to have this perfect recall to be able to write it down years later. So Jesus is pre-authenticating the writings, because he, get, he, he, he chose specific emissaries who he gave this ability to, to write and oversee the production of the New Testament. And secondly, the New Testament books were recognized by God's people. The apostles recognized their own writings as, as Scripture. Notice 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says of his own writing, if anybody thinks he's a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. Now notice, there was no council that met to say, hey, does Paul's writings fit? Paul's an apostle sent by God to produce a portion of the New Testament, and he recognizes that. And not only that, Paul recognized that his letters were authoritative. He expected others to do so, but Peter recognized Paul's letters as well. So you got one apostle recognizing the writings of another apostle. Look at this, 2 Peter 3. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He, that is Paul, writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. <coughs> now notice this last phrase, as they do the other. Now that word's important, scriptures. Because the word scripture is a technical term for the writings. The authoritative writings that came from God. That's why in 2 Timothy 3.16 that we saw earlier, remember it's all what? Scripture. So here's Peter saying Paul's writings are scripture. They are part of the authoritative writings that have come from God. And so the New Testament books were pre-authenticated by Christ. 
They were recognized by God's, God's people. The apostles recognized their own, recognized each other's. And then the church recognized the apostles' writings as Scripture. Again, not authorized, but recognized. The early church applied several tests to determine which books were Scripture. <clears throat> These did not determine the authority. They simply helped recognize it, as I've said. So here were the criteria. These books had to be written with the apostles' authority. They were either written by an apostle or an associate of the apostle. Luke is an associate of Paul. So Luke writes the Gospel of Luke, but Luke's gotten his information primarily from Paul. And he writes the book of, writes the book of Acts because he traveled with, with Paul. So it's either written by an apostle or with an apostle's authority as one of their associates. Secondly, it was the books that were commonly accepted as authentic. Since apostolic authority was the first criteria, it followed logically that the apostles' writings should have little trouble being recognized by the church that the apostles established. And then thirdly, the church recognized books which were orthodox. That is, they taught things consistent with other things that were already in the Bible. So you have the Bible being inspired, you have the Bible being complete, Old and New Testament, and now lastly, the Bible is preserved. Since God is ultimately responsible for the content of Scripture and its compilation, it follows that God has undertaken to preserve what He inspired. I mean, it just is a logical corollary of the fact that God inspired the Bible that He would make sure you still have it. <laughs> Otherwise, what's the point? So God has undertaken to preserve it. He's employed human agency in the preservation of the Bible. This means that God has preserved His Word providentially, not miraculously. Now that providentially, not miraculously is important because it means that the providential part is people are making copies. And God is providentially ensuring that we have enough of those copies, as we're going to see in a minute, or that those copies are pristine. Some of them are pristine, exact replicas. Some are not, but we have enough of them to know. But God's overseeing that. Now, if He's miraculously doing it, that means no one can make a copying error, right? And we know God's not miraculously doing that because you could try to copy a portion of Scripture and make an error with it. I could do that as well. So God has not miraculously held people's hands so that they couldn't make a mistake in, in copying. But He still preserved it by giving us the manuscripts that we have. Let's look at that. The Old Testament is preserved. Christ confirmed, in fact, the preservation of the Old Testament. Matthew 5.18, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, when it says, <clears throat> not the smallest letter, least stroke of a pen. In the King James Version, some of you have read that, it says, not a jot nor a tittle. Remember that? Not a jot nor a tittle. And here in the NIV, it says, not the smallest letter, least stroke of a pen. So, a jot, smallest letter. And a, a tittle, the least stroke of a pen. What are, we, what are we talking about here? Well, here's what we're talking about. And I would show you what we were talking about if there were chalk. Is there chalk? Oh, yay. So here's what we are talking about. The smallest letter in Hebrew, the smallest letter in Hebrew is a yod. The anglicized form of yod is jot. And a yod, a yod looks like this. Like a, an apostrophe. That's it. That's the smallest letter, a yod, a jot. 
So the King James says a jot, NIV says the smallest letter. Now a tittle, it says the least stroke of a pen, what is that? Well, you got these, that's a yod, but then you've got these two other Hebrew letters. One of them is a resh, that's a resh, the R sound. But then you've got a, another letter called a, a dalit, and the dalit is that. Now, the dalit and the resh look pretty close, don't they? And the difference between the D sound and the R sound is that thing. And guess what that's called? A tittle. Or the least stroke of a pen. <clears throat> so Jesus is talking about the apostrophe-looking thing. He's talking about the little thing that hangs over the end so that you know it's a D rather than an R. He's talking detail here, right? <clears throat> It should be noted that Jesus' comments regarding the extraordinary preservation of the Old Testament were made at the time when there were no original manuscripts. Remember, the Old Testament had been completed for 400 years. You know, Moses had lived 1,500 years before Jesus. So the book of Genesis was 1,500. The original copy of the book of Genesis was long gone. But, been preserved. Now, in the Old Testament, that preservation partly was because you had people who, whose job it was, their profession was to copy stuff. The scribes, they copied stuff. They were, that Hebrew Bible that I told you that I have, you go to the end of a book, at the end of the book you'll have these statistics at the end of the book. The statistics are giving numbers of words and numbers of letters because they counted how many words, how many Hebrew words were to be part of this book. And when they got to the end, if the count doesn't come out right, they have to do it over again. So that's how meticulous the Old Testament was. Then you've got the New Testament. Well, the apostles confirmed the preservation of the Old Testament by quoting from it, calling it Scripture, and all of that. But then the New Testament is preserved as well. The God who preserved the Old Testament has preserved the New. God's interest in preserving His Word extends to the New Testament as well as the Old. Christians can rest assured that God will not abandon His Word. Now, how in the New Testament? The New Testament, what you got, you don't have a professional class of people doing this. You got regular folk like copying scripture. But what you've got is this amazing number of manuscripts of the New Testament. There are approximately 5,000 extant copies of the New Testament. That's more copies than any writing of Shakespeare, of Aristotle, of anybody whose writings that we have and nobody questions. 5,000. Comparison of these confirms the amazing degree to which God's Word has been providentially preserved. So, you can, our own Dr. Combs is a bona fide scholar on New Testament manuscripts. I mean, like, bona fide scholar. This is what he devoted his life to. And he took our church on a tour years ago to Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor... Uh, University of Michigan Library at Ann Arbor had the fifth largest collection of biblical manuscripts in the world. And so we go there, and they, you know, these things are under glass, and they got this one portion of Ephesians chapter 1 that is variously dated. Some date it to 120 A.D., some as early as 85 A.D. And, you know, I had to take Greek when I was in seminary. And so I'm looking and through the glass and I'm looking and I'm reading that and I'm going, that is exactly what we have. That's exactly what we have in English 2,000 years later. 
So you've got, and now, when you compare these, because they were not done by professionals, they're just done by regular folk, then they're copying from one to the other. And when they do that, sometimes they'll double a, a word. You know how you're doing that, and you'll double a word. Or the same line, they'll do the same line, right? But you look at it, you know what they did. So you have so many of these that it's very easy to see what the original, what the original was because so many have been preserved. So manuscript evidence confirms the preservation, 5,000 of these. Now, it's important to distinguish between inspiration and preservation. Inspiration deals with the originals, preservation with the copies. And the copies are not inspired per se. They derive their inspiration as they accurately reflect the content of the original. So it's not correct to equate inspiration with a particular version of the Bible. You guys know why we're saying that, right? Because you have people who say... The King James Bible is the only inspired version of the Bible. And the problem with that is the King James is a copy, like the NIV is a copy. And the King James Version was originally translated in 1611. And since 1611, we found more manuscripts that are literally hundreds of years older than the oldest manuscript that the King James translators had. Hundreds of years older. Now, you look at an NIV, you look at a a King James, how much difference is there? One one-thousandth of the Bible. And none of them deal with a doctrinal matter. So they, they deal with these, these small issues of, you know, is this word, you know, you know, I mean, sometimes literally and or the, that kind of thing. So they're small matters. They don't impinge on any doctrinal matter. It's amazing the degree to which God has providentially preserved His Word. All right, are we at the end? Is that it? Yay. And what time is it? Oh, wow. 8.14? i got time for questions then. (laughs) All right, guys. Thank you. Yeah, we did. All right, thanks.